Good morning, LifePoint. My name is Derek. My wife, Melissa, and I are members here. I happen to lead a global missions organization as well. If you're new this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Before we get rolling, if you are new and it's your first time, we want you to know that you're absolutely in the right place. And we're so glad that you cho chose to be with us this morning. If you would do us a favor, uh, most people have cell phones. If you take your cell phone and just point it point your camera at the QR code in the seat in front of you. That'll get you to our lpguest.com link and that allows you to kind of have greater interaction with what's happening this morning. We are so glad that you're with us and hopefully feeling refreshed as everyone here I'm sure slept the extra hour and didn't forget about it and then spent an hour this morning what in the world wondering what in the world they were going to do. Um, we began last week in a new series in the book of Daniel and so last week we were in Daniel chapter 1. You want to use this opportunity to take your phone out or take your Bible out and get to the book of Daniel. Before we jump into Daniel chapter 2 I just want to give us some context for what we're about to read. One of the great questions that nations have to ask themselves is when you go to war against another nation and you win, how will you govern the conquering nation? Now, it may seem like a, a fairly straightforward question, but the answer to that is actually pretty challenging. For example, uh, when the Allies won World War I and conquered the enemy, because they chose to govern those, conquering, those conquered nations poorly, it actually set the seeds for World War II. The Assyrian Empire, great empire, comes after the Egyptian Empire, was notoriously harsh in the way that it conquered foreign territories. They took you over and man, it was clampy downy all day long. They were after you. They were going to not just govern you, they were going to govern you with an iron fist. It was very much a militant state. But different empires have had different ways of responding to that. The Babylonian Empire, which is the context of the book of Daniel, had a different approach. They conquered you militarily, and then what they decided to do was to indoctrinate the future leaders or future influencers of your society. The idea was if we could indoctrinate you as a Babylonian, reteach you that our culture is better than yours, even if you go back, you'll still further our empire and our culture and our national identity. And so they would take these young leaders and they would remove them from their home, in this case, Jerusalem. And there were many young Jewish leaders who were removed, by the way, not just Daniel and his friends. And they would bring them into Babylon. Now, whenever you want to indoctrinate someone, the first thing you do is you deal with the identity issue. Every buildup begins with the breakdown of identity. It's what our military is based on. Same thing's true when you go to Babylonian indoctrination school. They bring you into an area and they teach you, you are quarantined, and they say the first thing we're going to do is give you a different name. That name is going to be in line with the way we think you should be identified, not the way that you should be identified or the way that you choose to be identified. So for instance, Daniel's name name means God is my judge. A clear value that Yahweh stands outside of him and that Yahweh is his judge. Well, he's renamed Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life or treasure of Bel. Bel, of course, being one of the high gods of the Babylonian kind of polytheistic deities. Hananiah, 
whose name means the Lord shows grace. His name's changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, a different God. Mishael, whose name means who is what God is. That's not a genuine question. It's literally a way of saying who in the world is like our God. There is no God like our God. Well, he's renamed to who is what Aku is. No, no, it's our God, not Yahweh as God. And then Azariah, his name means the Lord helps, and he is re-identified as Abednego, which means a servant of Nabu. Again, another God in the pantheon of Babylonian gods. So first, they rename you. Now, that doesn't mean you have to take on that identity, but understand that a part of this was also to overwhelm you with the beauty of Babylon. Jerusalem, extraordinarily beautiful city. And if you live in Jerusalem, you think it can't get any better than this until you go to the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon was incredibly beautiful. In fact, if you were to go to the Museum of Berlin today, you could see one of the outer gates. Cobalt blues, lions etched in the wall. Absolutely gorgeous. To, to give you an idea of the opulence of the place and the beauty of the place, this melting pot of nations under Babylonian rule, when the king's wife said, you know, I'm kind of homesick. I miss the countryside. The king said, no problem, I'll build you gardens up on our palace roof. And that became the eighth wonder of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That's how incredible it was. Everyone was like, we've never seen anything like this. There was a ziggurat in the middle of the city. The ziggurat's kind of an ancient pyramid. And at the top, they would have their astrologers. In fact, we found cots where they've laid down, literally studying the stars. In other words, this was the epicenter of learning of the ancient world. You don't get much more scientifically sophisticated. You don't get, get much more culturally sophisticated. You come to our big city, see how great we are. Now, don't you want to identify with us. And by the way, a whole lot of people said, yeah, I guess you're smarter than I am. I guess you know more than I do. By the way, even Jewish leaders who were brought there, not everybody did what Daniel and his friends did. But there's a problem. Someone once said, whoever bows to the spirit of the age will find themselves a widower in the next. We have to be careful which spirits we bow to. Even if it's a contemporary, cool, awesome-looking spirit, a great city called Babylon. Babylon, of course, is used throughout Scripture as the very best that the world has to offer. And Scripture constantly reminds us again and again and again about Babylon that even gourmet food, if prepared well, even as tasty as it may seem, if it's poison, it'll still kill you. It doesn't matter how well it's prepared or how good it looks. And Babylon comes to symbolize that. We saw that in the last series in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned over and over again as the very best humanity has to offer and how even that will kill you. Well, when it comes to the book of Daniel, we're here in Delaware, Ohio. And many of us, many of us might think to ourselves, well, who cares? That's geopolitical history. Um, Daniel and his friends were exiles in Babylon. I don't live in Babylon. I don't particularly care. What about us. What does it mean for us? Well, it's helpful here to think about a double estrangement that uh, Christians really have, followers of Christ. First of all, we're humanity in general is estranged from God because at the fall, we became separated from him by sin. 
So there's an estrangement there from God. But then Christians discovered that God is real. We align ourselves under God, under Jesus Christ. And then we become aligned to God, but we become estranged from the world. So what God says is, listen, you're a part of my family. You're no longer estranged, but you are in exile. You're going to get home one day, but you're not home yet. And there's a difference from being estranged from God and being unified with him, a part of his kingdom of being exiled from the home that we're going to have one day. And as we heard in the last series, one day, everything will be made right. We'll all get home together. And that will be an incredible day. Listen to these words from the author of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 13. He's describing those in the Old Testament. And he says this, These all died in faith. He's talking about the great hall of faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's Abraham. That's Jacob. That's anybody who's ever followed Yahweh. They're exiles on the earth. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which do what? Well, they poison you, which wage war against your soul. Uh, Maybe the best way to kind of put this is to be reminded of a lyric from Michael W. Smith. Now, this dates me. I admit that, okay? But uh, the lyric is from a song called uh, The Other Side. He says, I'm not how I used to be when we hung around. Back when it was you and me tearing up this town, we used to live our lives running from change. Now we don't see eye to eye. I am not the same. I'm on the other side. And the Christian knows what that means. Wait a second. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world anymore. I'm on the other side. I'm now an exile in this world. So whenever we read Daniel, we read the story of the exiles, we're really reading the story of us. And it's important that we see, wait a second, just as he is an exile, we may not be in exile geopolitically, but certainly we're in exile spiritually. Our kingdom is not Babylon. Now, one more thing before we get into the text. Exiled is not exempted. Exiled is not exempted. In the first two chapters of Daniel, what happens to Daniel and his friends happens to everybody. Now, the exiled will be targeted a little bit later when we get into the story of a fiery furnace. Okay? That's when they're going to be targeted. But for now, the exiled, just like everybody else, are going through world events together. It's not that we're exempted from the world events because we're exiled. It's how we respond to them that's different than the world that makes the biggest difference. That reveals our allegiance, reveals whether we're in exile or whether we're just estranged. That's important context for us this morning. With that in mind, we're going to get into Daniel chapter 2. Now, Daniel chapter 2 has about 50 verses. I'm not going to read all 50 But I do want us to get the gist of the story. And uh, I want to encourage you uh, to go back and read the entire chapter. This is such a powerful story in God's word. All right. We're going to pick things up from chapter 2 and verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, basically the intelligentsia and the religious elite of the day, be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. 
Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. By the way, a pretty common practice in the ancient world. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, well, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream, uh, make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. There's an understatement. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, other translations say wisdom and tact, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Note the deliberate use of their uh, Israelite names, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Okay, we're going to skip forward. By the way, Daniel gives a really beautiful prayer of blessing here. I want to encourage you to take a look at it. Let's get to verse 31. Daniel stands before the king. And here's the dream and its interpretation. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on, the, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then to verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to have your word speak to us and us be changed by it. We invite you into this place as exiles in the land of Babylon and we recognize there's only one God 
and we are not him. So teach us this morning. We long to be changed by your word. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. Well, the first question I suppose we should ask is why in the world is king, the king so scared of a dream? It's a pretty good question. By the way, dreams, even today, are pretty powerful things. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel fame recently, and he just came out with his last album. Apparently, he's gone deaf in one ear, and that album is kind of like a hymn. And they said, where'd you get the inspiration from your album? He said, I dreamt it. I actually dreamt the album, and it was so powerful that I woke up and started to write down the music. Uh, I have several Muslim friends who actually met Jesus in a dream. Jesus appeared to them in a dream, and man, it changed the course of their lives. Dreams can be very powerful, powerful things. But when it comes to this story, there's one thing to have dreams. That's why the king has interpreters. That's why he has magicians. That's why he has the intelligentsia interpret the times for me. What's happening? What's my subconscious saying? What does it all mean? That's why he has them. But why is he so insistent for this dream that he not share the dream to receive the interpretation? Good question, right? What in the world is he so afraid of? Well, here it's helpful to remember just a little bit of court intrigue. The king cannot afford to show weakness. If he tells them the dream, which is clearly the image of a man, a king, uh, clearly the image of a statue of a man, right? appearance of a king, and he says, oh, it all goes away. That allows them to talk amongst themselves. That allows the people that they talk to to talk amongst themselves and go, oh, the king is weak. Maybe this means he's going to be toppled over. Let's start scheming now to assassinate the king. So the king has a problem. He can't tell them the dream, but he needs the interpretation of the dream because the dream is so disturbing. So his answer is, you tell me you speak to the gods. Why don't you tell me what I dreamt? Of course, that absolutely stumps them. So that's why he's both furious and afraid and not telling the dream. All right, let's talk about what this means for us. The first thing that we see is this. Power trumps pretense. Power trumps pretense. You know, power is really sought when you're desperate and you absolutely have to have real power. Uh, through the years, I've noticed kind of an interesting phenomenon uh, with my atheistic friends or my non-believing friends, and that is when they're really desperate, they'll often come up to me and they'll go, hey, listen, I don't believe, but would you just mind saying a prayer for me? Now, maybe it's their Hail Mary. I'm not sure, but I totally get it. When you're really desperate and there's no time for game playing or for you know, thinking about all the philosophy of it and wondering about the theology of it and trying to like figure it all out. When you're just desperate, really truly desperate for an answer, turns out you want to go where the power is. I can tell you that in my own house, I was raised in a Christian house, I knew that if my mom prayed, something happened. Okay? Now, theologically, I believe that God heard everybody who's a believer. God listens to your prayers. We know that. Okay, believe that. The Bible says that. But have you ever noticed it just seems like sometimes he answers some people more than other people? And that was the case in our family. I just knew, man, I've got a serious situation. If my mom prays, I just, something tends to happen when she prays. You drop all your pretense. You go where the power source is. Now, there's shades of 
the story of Joseph in this. Remember the Pharaoh in the story of Joseph? He was desperate too. When you're desperate, what do you do? Bring the guy out of prison. Sure, I'll listen to what he has to say if he has an answer, right? If you're really desperate, the power source, who actually has the answer? Who knows the reality? It trumps the pretense of the situation. What's the pretense of the intelligentsia? Just read our case studies. Just look at our philosophy. We can interpret the times. Listen to our philosophies. You give us the facts. We'll tell you what the facts mean. We'll reinterpret reality if we have to because we're so smart. Great. Tell me what the facts actually are. Oh, we don't do that. Well, then what help are you? Well, I don't think you understand. We reinterpret everything. We just write a lot of papers. We do a lot of lecturing. We tell you what you're not doing and how you can correct it based on what we think because it makes us look smart. Right, but I need actual answers. Help me really understand reality. Oh, reality, we don't talk about reality. Why? Well, what's reality? Well, that's what I'm trying to find out. How about you tell me? Now see, see how you start to get a little upset? Why? Because when you're desperate, you don't have any pretense. So. Power is sought by the desperate. And a lack of pretense then often will engender credibility for you. One of the things that I love about this story is that Daniel, who knows Arioch from chapter 1, and he knows that Arioch is out to kill, he has to kill him and his friends. Okay, they know that. What's interesting is, when he comes to him, when, when Arioch comes to Daniel, Daniel doesn't ask about the decree but about the urgency of the decree. He says, why now? In other words, Daniel recognized that the king had a right to declare whatever he wants. He's the king. But Daniel comes at this from a sense of timing and not defense. In other words, there's no pretentiousness on Daniel's part. Now remember, Daniel could have used that. He could have said, what do you what do you mean they're going to kill us? We just helped everyone get healthier. We've adjusted their dietary program. Like we had this whole experiment. If anyone's helped Babylon in your indoctrination program, this guy right here by doing what's right, how dare you come after us? Go kill them. They all deserve to die. But he doesn't spend his time defending. Why? Because he's unpretentious. He doesn't defend his existence. What does he do? He asks for more time. And I think there's a real humility here that we shouldn't miss in how Daniel relates to the world around him. And maybe it's a cue that we could take as well and how we relate to the world around us. You know, how we respond to a pagan world really matters. It really does matter. Look at verse 14 with me. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Now, don't you wish we had a little bit more prudence and discretion in this world? A little bit more wisdom and tact. And who's that to come from according to Scripture? It's to come from those who are not aligned with the spirit of the age, but those who are aligned with the God of the universe. Our response is to be a response that is prudent and has some tact around us. So power trumps pretense. Here's the second thing I want you to see in the story. 
Dependence is confidence. Dependence is confidence. Not independence is confidence. If you're dependent in yourself, you have to be careful because that can quickly turn to arrogance. A DEA officer stopped at a ranch in Texas and he was speaking with an old rancher. He told the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. The rancher said, okay, but don't go into that field over there, as he pointed out the location. The DEA officer verbally exploded saying, Mr. I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his rear pants pocket, the arrogant officer removed his badge and proudly displayed it at his rancher. See this badge? This badge means I'm allowed to go wherever I wish, on any land, no questions asked or answers given. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand? The rancher nodded politely, apologized, and went about his chores. And a short time later, the old rancher heard loud screams. He looked up and saw the DEA officer running for his life, being chased by the rancher's prized bull. With every step that the bull was gaining on the officer, and it seemed likely that he'd sure enough get gored before he reached safety, and the officer was clearly terrified. The rancher threw down his tools, ran to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, your badge, show him your badge. <laughs> now here's the point. If you depend on yourself, you'll wind up with an arrogance that'll backfire. Daniel didn't have the answers. By the way, in the story of Joseph, Joseph knew he didn't have the answers. It took, a took two years, actually, of being in a prison cell for Joseph to figure that out. Daniel had a pretty good sense because of the exile immediately. So I don't have the answers, but I know a God who does. I can't even guarantee he'll give me those answers. But I do know he allows me to ask. You know, true confidence is knowing who actually has the answers. We, uh, we study for tests, speaking to students in the room, that, so that we can be confident, right, on the day of being tested. But let me just say, life is a lot bigger than math and English. And sometimes, most often, we simply just don't know enough. Bigger things are happening. And life can seem overwhelming. Right? You watch the news often enough, I get where all the anxiety is coming from. If you think that you have to have the answers to navigate your way through it. If, however, you realize that your dependence isn't on you, your dependence is on God, you now know who you can go to. So uh, there's a few things that happen here. One is, the, one is that Daniel enlists the help of his friends. He said, let's go to the power source together. Let's go to the power source together. Now, every now and again, I'll hear someone say, you know what? I'm spiritual. I really like Jesus. I meditate. I follow Jesus. I just don't like his church. I don't go to church. I don't like organized religion. You got a couple problems. First, Jesus loved his church and says, talks a lot about his church. But another argument for church is exactly this. Who you enlist when it really matters depends on who's on mission with you. That's the church. Who's on mission with Daniel? It's not every Jewish exile. It's his friends who've decided to stand on the side of Yahweh. That's God's local church. We're here doing this thing together. So we need each other. We need to enlist the prayers of each other. Then God answers Daniel's prayer. 
And everybody does like a collective, Daniel knows the, the dream. He knows the interpretation. And Daniel gives this beautiful prayer of gratitude. Uh, I really want to encourage you, go back and read the prayer. It's incredible. Now, the world is just now waking up to the power of gratitude, right? Uh, there are some challenges with the way we practice gratitude. Just meditate everything you have and things will go well for you. No, no, it's bigger than that. It's who has the answers. It's all about the God that you have gratitude in. But gratitude does a couple of things for you. First, it allows you to have the humility to know who actually delivered on the answer. That's important because you're about to stand up against a force bigger than you. The second is that it empowers you. Gratitude empowers you in a way that other adjectives might not. You can study real well, believe in your own brain, but the challenge is there, if you're not grateful, then it places you in a difficult posture when it comes to your interaction with other people. So gratitude is empowering. It's going to matter for how Daniel stands in front of the king. And then what does Daniel do? He doesn't just say, God gave me the answer, and by the time I stand in front of you, I go, here's my answer. How many times have we done that? You asked about the question. I've done my research. Here's the answer for you. No, he stands up and he goes, I didn't have the answer, but God had the answer. He points it back to God. He says, listen, let me just declare who has the answers. Life can be overwhelming. What do I do? The answer is sometimes all you have to do is point to him. There's only one Holy Spirit. You're not him. I'm not him. Don't try to be Holy Spirit Junior. Ours is not the job to convict of sin. Ours is simply to go, listen, I don't know much. He has the answers. And so we point to him. It's a declaration of who he is. So sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is just to stand firm knowing the Holy Spirit stands with you. And all you need to do is say, it's not me, it's him. Here's the last thing I want us to see. Here comes the king, all bow down. Here comes the king, all bow down. The book of Daniel really has two parts, right? The first six chapters are about the person of Daniel. Daniel. The second six chapters are about the prophecies of Daniel. Not too hard to parse out. Sixth person, six the prophecies. But there is one overarching theme when it comes to Daniel. And that is that it's really about who is the most high God and why. And the Most High God in Israelite uh, uh, culture and religion is Yahweh. But he's also known as El. In the polytheistic pantheon of ancient gods, it's interesting. There's always a supreme God. Right? This is even true of tribes in the Amazon. Uh, sociologists and anthropologists have noted this around the world. It seems like there's this pantheon. They all give a different name to the guy at top. Well, the whole book of, of Daniel is essentially saying, listen, you've got it wrong. There is only one God. He's the ultimate supreme God and he's real. And he's bigger than the kings. He's bigger than the empires. And believe me, everything flows through him. But also one day, everything comes to an end by him and only he remains. Literally, the dream is about how humanity is toppled by God. Here comes the king. All bow down. What's the dream? We have a head of gold. We have this different metals, right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, then iron and clay. And these describe the great empires of the world. 
Gold is Babylon, right? Silver is the Medo-Persian Empire, which is going to come next. Iron, uh, uh, sorry, uh, bronze becomes the Greek Empire. And iron becomes the Roman Empire. Makes sense for the Romans. Good, strong stuff, right? But the feet are a mix of iron and clay. Making them both brittle, but also having some facsimile of the Roman Empire. Describing many different kingdoms in many different forms, some which are weaker than others. That describes the here and now. And along comes a stone, not cut by human hands, but one that comes along and then bowls the whole thing over. And like Avengers Endgame, the whole thing goes away. And in the end, and literally that's the description, right? Like chaff, it just blows away. And in its place is this, this mountain, this new reality of God. All of your human kingdoms, for as beautiful as they are, Babylon, man, you are gold. Guess what? You're just chaff. Why? Because here comes the king. All bow down. This is a reference to what we learned about in the book of Revelation. That one day the whole thing goes away. Because the kingdom of God through Jesus. Beginning with Jesus starts to roll in. And when it takes it over. It takes it completely over. The old is gone. The new has come. Now scripture has several things to say about this idea of the rock. And I just want to get into this real quick. And then we'll close. Luke chapter 20 and verses 17 to 18 says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But, on he, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. In other words, if you choose to engage with Jesus now and realize you're not all that. And you need to be broken. That's a better choice than one day discovering that the inevitable is going to happen. And whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen to you. Romans chapter 9 and verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. I love that. That's a reference to Isaiah chapter 8. And a rock of offense. Stone of stumbling, rock of offense. Let that sink in just real quick. And... The scripture goes on, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, you can trust God to come through. If you'll allow Jesus to cause you to stumble in your thinking, realizing maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe it's not me. Maybe, maybe with all of our science, and all of our philosophies, and all of our YouTube videos, and all of our TikToks, maybe we're still not as smart as we think we are. Is that possible? And if it is, and there's a greater reality, there awaits for us an opportunity. Peter puts it this way. Of course, if anybody's going to talk about rocks, it's going to be Peter, right? And Jesus said, hey, Peter, you're Simon, but upon this Pet Petra, right? He's referring to himself, upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter goes on to say, and by the way, when we become exiles, not estranged anymore, but exiles, we become chip off the old block. It's literally what it says, living stones. And we're being built up together into this kingdom. We get to roll with the rolling stone, if you see what I'm saying. 
that topples over the world and be a part of the kingdom of God. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Man. Now, we don't have all the answers. But we do know the answer. Here's the big idea this morning. The exiled are the commissioned. The exiled are the commissioned. Have you ever just thought to yourself, maybe you've watched the evening news or maybe you've been on your college campus or in your, your class or wherever you're at, in your own world, and you just thought, man, I just wish that someone would come in here and just like change the system. Have you ever thought that? Just like, man, if we could just get someone into government that could just stand up and do the thing, if someone could just come up and tell my boss, if someone could just come in here and like witness to the, the reality of Jesus Christ in my context, my workplace, the places that I play, like if someone could do that, that would be incredible. Well, God sent you. You're no longer estranged. You are in exile. Think about it this way. God allows Jerusalem to be taken down. Lots of good reasons for that, by the way. He's calling his nation to repentance. But what does he do in the meantime? Have you ever gotten this question? Well, does God just hate everybody in the world and that's why they don't know about it? It's like he, did, he only came to the Israelites. He didn't go to everybody. And so he, clearly God doesn't care about the nations. Garbage. Don't you believe it for a second. God has always loved the nations. God's loved them so much that he's even allowed his own people to be conquered so that he could get his people to the nations to stand before kings and emperors and empires to declare the reality and the goodness of God. He's done that from the beginning of time. He's doing it right now. He's doing it through you. Who's going to reach your workplace? Guess what? You are the testimony of the goodness and the greatness of God. You want to change your neighborhood? Proclaim his goodness in your neighborhood. You want to change the places where you live, work, but it's hard. I don't want to. I don't like it. They, they're so smart. What if they ask me something I can't answer? So what? I don't have all the answers. I don't need to be that pretentious. But I do know how to pray. And I can go to other people to enlist in prayer. And do you know what? The Holy Spirit is just that real. That very often, He helps you to see things that you otherwise wouldn't see when you're reading Scripture. And have answers you might not otherwise have. You could say something in passing that will change the trajectory of someone else's life. So here's the question. It's not where you are. It's what will you do in the face of it? Are you going to change your diet? Or just consume what the world consumes? That's chapter one. Are you going to stay silent? Or proclaim that God has the answers and pray like crazy. That's chapter 2. Are you an exile? Or are you just existing? Jesus wants more for you than that. So, if you're stumbling over Jesus this morning, that's okay. 
It's an invitation for you to put your life into his hands. Why? Well, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for being trustworthy. Thank you for coming through in extraordinary circumstances then, but also now. Thank you that your word is so applicable. All we can do is have hearts full of gratitude, not because of us, but because of you. Here comes the king. All bow down. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray.